Welcome to the Disease to Your podcast on the topic of equine diarrhea with Dr. Carolyn McKinney. I'm your host, Kim Brown, publisher of Equimanagement. The Disease to Your podcast is brought to you in 2022 by Merck Animal Health. McKinney, DVM, MPH, is an NIH T32 postdoctoral fellow in comparative biomedical sciences at North Carolina State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Her internal medicine residency research work at Tufts University revolved around the equine fecal microbiome, how it changes in colitis, and how it can be manipulated through treatments like fecal microbiota transplantation. Her professional interests include comparative and translational gastrointestinal research with a focus on manipulating the microbiome. Welcome, Dr. McKinney. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on Disease Du Jour. I love this podcast, so really honored to have an opportunity to contribute. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know you're extremely busy, but I guess most horses are going to develop some degree of diarrhea in their lives, and yet researchers have said that in less than 50% of cases will a definitive cause be determined, plus the fact that diarrhea affects the horse's GI microbiome. But I've got to ask you to start, what attracted you to research about the equine microbiome? That's a a great question. And I think I started this interest in residency, and I must say that the my senior resident at the time was also very interested in it. And her name is Dr. Sophie Saj, and she's currently a clinician um, in Bern, Switzerland. But together, we would talk often about how the microbiome and the natural bacteria that are in the horse's intestinal tract are changing during, during different disease states and how we potentially could try to use that to the horse's advantage. So as many have remarked and most of our listeners have seen, when foals are young, they naturally feel inclined to eat their mother's manure, giving themselves a fecal microbial transplantation, if you will. A lot of other species will do similar, an act of fecal microbial transplantation or transplantation using fistulated cows has been practiced for ages. And so began developing these questions about how we might be able to use this very natural source of good bacteria uh, to try to ameliorate disease. And so that opened up the the floodgates with these questions. Well, and that's really interesting. And I've got to say that everyone I know in the veterinary industry is really interested in the microbiome of the horse and trying to figure it out. So we look forward to hearing more about your research in the years to come and seeing what you find out about it. But for now, Let's talk diarrhea. So why is diarrhea such a problem in the horse population? That's a great question, uh, Kim. And as most of us know, uh, the mortality rate associated with diarrhea, at least in horses that present to hospital for diarrhea, is about 30%. So while we think of this as a very manageable disease in humans or small animal species, it unfortunately still carries a a significant risk of mortality in in our horse patients. And um, as we know about our horse patients, um, and as seems to be true in many body systems, um, is that they can be very delicate. So they have a delicate large intestine that has really kind of minutely balanced a mixture of bacteria. And if something disrupts that bacteria, it could be a variety of causes that leads to what's called dysbiosis or an imbalance in the bacteria that are there. And that can cause diarrhea, even without you know a specific identifiable trigger, getting back to that, you know, 60-ish percent of cases that whose etiology won't be specifically identified, which is, of course, frustrating for all of us veterinarians and owners, too. Uh, so not only are the horses 
bacterial balance in their in their colons very minutely balanced, if you will. They also have the capacity, because they are large animals and drink a lot of water and have a significant fluid intake in their colon, they have the capacity to also lose a lot of water that way. So there's a statistic uh, that, uh, you know, an average size 40, 450 kilogram horse with chronic watery diarrhea can lose up to like 90 liters of, of diarrhea per day. So that can lead to really significant dehydration, which is really hard to keep up with, um, both for replacing those losses just technically in the, you know, in the logistical format, but also financially in terms of managing those cases for, for our owners and in our hospital settings. Uh, then I guess the third part, um, so beyond being the, you know, very specifically balanced bacteria, the amount of fluid they can lose uh, would be that they're very sensitive to endotoxins or lipopolysaccharides, which are parts of gram-negative bacteria, uh, that when the gut is inflamed, for whatever reason, if those bits of bacteria can get into the bloodstream through the leaky tight junctions that are usually tight in the normal uh, intestinal wall, that can lead to really significant uh, systemic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS and all the complicated downstream effects that we uh, horse veterinarians really worry about in terms of laminitis and yeah, the list goes on. And let's talk a little bit about the mechanism behind diarrhea, because this is not a simple disease. No, you're absolutely right. And there are really kind of five primary mechanisms that I think of when I consider diarrhea, or what's contributing to diarrhea. And that I'd start with malabsorption, osmotic overload, increased secretion of both solutes and water, increased motility, and then an increased blood to intestinal lumen pressure. So starting with malabsorption first, this is probably the one that most of us think of uh, right off the bat. And that typically occurs when there's been some kind of damage to the lining of the intestine such that it prevents it from absorbing its necessary nutrients um, and water. Now, this is, of course, recoverable, but it takes some time. And this is a bit of the work I'm doing right now in the Gonzalez lab at NC State, um, specifically small intestine. But the principles uh, remain is that the intestinal stem cells that reproduce the cells that line either the small intestine or the colon um, are actively chron are continuously dividing. But it still takes about up to five days for that lining to be replenished. Um, which is, of course, assuming that the lining can be replenished because it's not continuing to be destroyed by or compromised by a challenge. So um, it's kind of an interesting benchmark to keep in mind when you're trying to get a patient through things that hopefully, you know, uh, again, assuming that there's not ongoing damage, we might be able to get through um, through that that five days, that time frame that uh that they can recover that lining. Um, and I will say it's not only the physical damage to the, the epithelium, the lining of the intestine, um, that is a problem, but also a loss of the metabolic enzymes that those cells produce. So we've talked about how there's such an important absorptive capacity for those cells. But they also produce a lot of important enzymes that break uh, substances down in the intestine. If we're not able to do that, then that, of course, produces another osmotic pull into the lumen of the intestine, which can contribute to more fluid being there than normally would be. Uh, and that kind of parlays nicely into that second mechanism, which is the osmotic overload. And this is you know, one we all think of, you know, someone who got into the grain room who shouldn't, shouldn't have. Um, there are too many particles in the lumen of the intestine that really draws the water there. And so, you know, typically we think about those particles making it to the large intestine cause leading to diarrhea. Um, now, the third mechanism that I mentioned was this increased secretion of solutes and water. 
I specifically think of this in regard to you know, salmonella and clostridial diseases, um, where some of the toxins produced by these diseases trigger increased secretion of certain electrolytes, so chloride and, and sodium, um, just by a mechanism of how those exotoxins, enterotoxins, excuse me, work. Um, and so not only do those diseases cause more secretion, but as I mentioned earlier, the immature cells that are coming to replace the ones that have been damaged are not quite as effective at absorption. So it takes us a little, or takes the intestine a little while to catch up to that. Um, the fourth mechanism is abnormal motility or a decreased transit time. So for whatever reason, the intestine is working too quickly in exposing things at the other end. Um, and that could be due to increased peristalsis um, or decreased segmentation. So the intestine doesn't have, um, they doesn't allocate the same amount of time and energy to breaking down the particles um, before they try to move it along aborally. And so that is, a natural defense of the gut. So if there's something irritating in, inside of it, it we want to ex expel it more quickly, um, but also of course contributes to diarrhea. And then the last, and I'd say probably least uh, common, but good to consider, keep on our list of differentials is the increased blood to lumen hydraulic pressure. So that occurs when there's reduced oncotic pressure. So if something else besides the damage to the gut is causing a loss of albumin, we don't have, um, particles really trying to hold fluid into the vessels at least an increased hydrostatic pressure. Um, and that can cause from that protein loss or from other primary disease problems. So heart failure or even portal hypertension with liver disease. Um, additionally, it can cause be caused by decreased lymphatic drainage. So from something like a neoplastic process that causes that decreased drainage. Um, and I would say generally that's more associated with a lower grade chronic diarrhea, but can be seen in acute diarrhea as well. Um, before I wrap it all up, I'll say usually most in diarrhea, there are multiple mechanisms that work at the same time. So and some of that thinking is more I think, part of just understanding physiologically what's going on. Um, but it's good to a good practice just to have an idea of what your patient is undergoing. That's a great list to run down. And thank you for that. But now let's talk a little bit about some of the causes of diarrhea. And I realize there are books written about this and we can't cover everything. But I know you had wanted specifically to talk about parasitic diarrhea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I was thinking through some of the causes that you know, we oftentimes think of the more infectious diseases, uh, importantly, because we want to, and not that parasites aren't infectious in themselves, but we think of, you know, the bacterial infectious diseases or the viral infectious diseases. Um, but I think parasites are worth considering as well. Um, and specifically, I wanted to touch on larval cyathostomiasis. Um, which primarily affects adult horses, and that's are from larvae of small strongiles. Um, of course, other strongile um, species can affect adults as well. And then in foals, we think of the strongyloides westeri being the, the strongyle of interest. Um, and so larval cyathostomiasis occurs when there are a large number of insisted larvae that simultaneously develop and exit the large intestinal mucosa at the same time. And this um, mass exodus um, is more likely if you have more of a mass. So horses that have heavy mucosal burdens, and it usually occurs in the late winter or early spring, which is um, just kind of follows the natural life cycle of the parasites and when they think they'll be most likely to survive after being, um, after they go through the rest of their life cycles. Um, I will say it's more common in younger horses, but can occur in horses in any age. And uh, the contributing factors to it are typically poor pasture management combined with a uh, lack of effective anthelmintic treatment. And we all know these days how challenging it can be to find effective uh, antiparasitics. So uh, 
that not necessarily that anyone is under deworming, perhaps it's actually the over deworming that may have contributed, but that certainly contributes to, to the problem. Uh, now, as far as some of the clinical signs you would see with larva, larval cyathostomiasis, I might just call it LC from now on, just for a lack of tongue twisting, um, that's often associated with hypoproteinemia. So we already talked about albumin loss, but this would be primarily from the GI tract, which has been damaged, um, and then weight loss as well also related to the lack of the enterocytes or those absorptive cells in the intestinal lining being able to do their job. And as I mentioned already, can more typically associate it with late winter, early spring. And uh, essentially, as I've kind of summed in some of the other statements, the gut walls leak protein-rich fluid, and then the horse will develop the diarrhea and the low protein. Um, this is a like a lot of diarrheal diseases, as we started out the podcast mentioning, can be a bit uh, frustrating to diagnose in that you really need a biopsy to diagnose it, which is a hard thing to do uh, in the field, obviously, uh, but not impossible, of course. Uh, so because the larvae are the things causing the problem, our fecal egg counts really aren't that helpful or aren't helpful because that those usually represent or do represent the amount of adults that are being shed. And even for adults, strong, small strong giles, fecal flotation is not the most ideal, where you know, sensitivity and specificity of those tests are both sub 40%. Um, there is an ELISA available now um, that was reviewed in a, a paper by Walsh and colleagues in 2020 um, that really help, can help confirm uh, or improve your confidence of diagnosis when you have a suspicion. But ultimately, it is getting a sample of, uh, of the colon that will help you. Um, and then to treat uh, larval cyathostomiasis, moxidectin and fenbendazole are technically both you know, option, options. However, I would say moxidectin is, or in my experience and based on reading, the more effective uh, due to growing resistance to fenbendazole. And in fact, fenbendazole also is associated with more severe inflammation following treatment. So um, it might not work as well, but it may also cause you more severe downstream effects. So I, I tend to go with the the moxidectin, however, as I alluded to earlier, you know, there's a paper in 2020 by Nielsen and colleagues. So, so there's growing moxidectin resistance in the U.S. So something that we have to worry about for all of our antiparasitics, but keep in mind. Uh, but I would say not only do we use the antiparasitics, but couple them with immunosuppressive doses of typically prednisolone. Um, and that's to help quell uh, some of the inflammation that can happen secondary to the die-off. So I usually start that a day or two, 24 to 48 hours before the anthelmintic treatment, and then um, taper it down depending on the clinical response of the patient. Just very important also to closely watch co-grazing animals for disease. Um, and you know, treat, I would treat them with a similar uh, protocol as well as, as necessary, but would of course track, try to track everyone in terms of weight loss, you know, protein levels. And um, then as we talked about fecal tests are not the most sensitive for this type of parasite, but good to practice regular fecal egg counts and reduction tests in your herds. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the maker of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their unconditional investment in our industry, profession, and community through programs such as the Respiratory Biosurveillance Program and the partnership with Equitrace, which delivers secure, streamlined record-keeping and instantaneous temperature measurement when coupled with Merck Animal Health Biotherm Microchips. 
Visit MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com for more information. The next one you said you wanted to talk about was right dorsal colitis. Now that's a tough one. It certainly is. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had a case that has stuck with them, um, who's, you know, who was affected by right dorsal colitis. And it's a really interesting disease because we all know horses that have lived on two grams a day of butte forever and not had a problem. And then, so, and then another horse that had a much less significant in terms of dosing or duration exposure and, and developed this disease. So um, as we all know, um, this is associated with a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug administration. So I know I, I picked on butte earlier, but it doesn't have to be butte. Um, and uh, clinical signs associated with it you know, vary from you know, a relatively healthy looking horse that has a little bit of soft stool uh, to profuse watery diarrhea with signs of endotoxemia and even um, can get shocky as well. But I will say lethargy, anorexia, depression, some of those lower grade symptoms are more common. Uh, you can get enough protein loss to, to see peripheral edema in a very advanced case. Uh, similar or not dissimilar from our last disease, this is more common in young horses that are in intense athletic work and require more regular NSAID treatment But uh, than in older horses. But of course, you know, I think there's probably some more looking to be done um, in terms of you know, the older horses that may rely on more regular treatment because, or NSAID treatment because of arthritis and other diseases like that. Um, so when I'm thinking there might be an exposure when I'm asking questions about any kind of diarrheal case you know, to answer those questions that might be related to right dorsal colitis, um, you know, of course, ask about current medications they're on. Um, and I will say, you know, typically or this disease can be associated with an excessive dose that was given. So an excessive dose is more highly suggested suggestive of this disease, but it can have all normal doses too. Uh, some of the changes you'll see on blood work, um, as similar to previous discussions, were hypoproteinemia due to hypoalbuminemia. And then you may see um, some renal disease as well, just uh, secondary uh, to the, the administration. Now, um, working through this syndrome, you know, ultrasound will be your friend in the field and in the hospital. Um, so as, as we all remember, the right dorsal colon is in the 11th to 13th, generally right intercostal space just below the caudal ventral lung lobe. So that's always where I stick my probe to check. And it should be less than um, uh, four millimeters. Um, but you may see it enlarged in these cases that they that are um, affected by right dorsal colitis. Um, and it is possible to see diffuse GI ulceration with these, but um, oftentimes it is just allocated to the right dorsal colon. And, um, you know, I am interested in this disease and want to do more reading and, and certainly could have missed uh, theories as to why this part of the colon is more affected. But it's just it's something that we're, we're curious about right now. At least I am not aware of a, a complete understanding of why why that part of the colon is. Um, Treatment for this would be obviously to stop NSAIDs um, and try other pain medications such as um, opioids, lidocaine, alpha-2 um, options, supportive care, which is consistent with our all of our di diarrheal diseases. Um, I really like to use sucralfate in these cases to facilitate mucosal um, healing and the mesoprostol as well, um, which is a, a prostaglandin analog that helps to restore mucosal blood flow and heal ulcerated mucosa. But I will say 
they have to be prepared for the side effects of mesoprostol and that it can cause colic itself and diarrhea itself. Um, and I, I avoid using it in pregnant mares, although there was a study in 2013 um, where it was given to mid-gestation mares and had um, no effect on, on their pregnancy. So I, would, I still err on the side of caution there, though. Uh, and then the dietary management oftentimes. So um, I often will avoid long or stemmy roughage that may further irritate the clonic mucosa just by um, you know, the tactile abrasion of it. Um, I'll replace it with a pelleted food, uh, add in a vegetable oil so the horses have more access to calories and may add other non-digestible oligosaccharides as well um, that really help produce the short chain fatty acids that the lining of the intestine needs for energy to recover itself. Um, so that might be in the form of uh, a psyllium um, or some kind of other barley, germinated barley feed stuff. Uh, I will say, fortunately, you know, um, if caught early, these cases can do pretty well, an 80% survival rate. Uh, but if it's in, if the condition is advanced and unresponsive to therapy, then you may re- require or consider attempting surgical resection, which is obviously very complicated. Yes. Um, and so then, of course, how to prevent right dorsoclitis would be monitoring um, serial proteins on horses that have prolonged course of NSAID treatment, um, which I think is, you know, I think that could be as uh, infrequent as every I don't know, three to six months, um, depending on how the horse is doing. So, um, and how long they're on it, but just getting a baseline first. Okay. And that's, uh, again, that's, that's one that all the vets have, have seen or will see. So let's Absolutely. skip down to toxins because we know there's a, a variety of toxins that can lead to diarrhea in horses. There certainly are. And very, variable based on what part of the country you're in and what environment your horse lives in. So the one that I think is on the top of everyone's head that I figured we could talk briefly about would be cantharidin, um, which we all know is a toxin from blister beetles, which like to contaminate alfalfa hay and make our lives challenging. Um, and the toxic dose for horses is typically one mg per kg, but the concentration of the toxin varies depending on the species actually of blister beetles. Um, and so these if consumed and in you know, toxic doses, it will lead to ulceration of the gastrointestinal tract, and that will cause the diarrhea from severe ulceration and inflammation of the large intestine. That leads to some of the mechanisms we discussed earlier, increased secretion of water, electrolytes, protein, that leads to the, the significant protein loss that we see. We'll say that's not always, those are, that's not the only sign you can see. I mean, it's not uncommon to see concurrent cystitis, um, so irritation of the bladder, uh, nephrosis or myocarditis as well. Uh, some of the striking electrolyte changes that you can see in these cases, which you know, perhaps you'll start to see the low protein and rule out all your other causes of diarrhea and see these electrolytes. And that might um, help get you thinking towards this process um, would be significant hypocalcemia and hypomagnesemia. Um, and then usually we see both the ionized and the total calcium decreased um, because it's not just from hypoalbuminemia. Uh, clinical signs for this condition, again, are dependent on the amount of consumption and then also you know, the effects that the blister beetles are having so far, or the cantharidin rather, and that can range from mild depression and abdominal discomfort to really fulminant toxemia and uh, rapid death, unfortunately. Um, some signs you might see include depression, sweating, irritability, tachycardia, tachypnea, 
And then of course the, the diarrhea that uh, inspired its inclusion today um, for definitive diagnosis that this is what's causing the diarrhea. Um, you need to measure cantharidin in the gastrointestinal contents or the urine. Um, however, if you find beetles in alfalfa hay that your horse has been eating, that's a pretty good indication as well. Um, and I'm not a beetle identification expert, but in case you find a beetle and you call your co-op about it, it's the species of epicotta that contain cantharidin. Um, unfortunately, this the fatality rate associated with cantharidin is about 50% or greater, depending on when you've caught it. So it's definitely times of the essence in this disease. And uh, like, again, similar recurrent trend for uh, treatment of diarrheal diseases, so fluid therapy, uh, maintaining electrolytes with special attention to the hypocalcemia mentioned earlier. Um, if you do catch it very early, you can try to administer some um, absorbent uh, absorbent powders or even add mineral oil to just try to um, encourage movement. Um, but uh, as we know, mineral oil as a cathartic is questionable. So um, that's kind of an older, uh, older approach, but really it's just supportive care. And, um, you know, I think I would likely, as the intestine can tolerate it, try some enteral therapies as well. Um, if anything, just to try to dilute what's there. And our, of course, our, our common one that people see all over the country, sand. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sand. And I will say, so I did my residency um, in Massachusetts, which of course has beaches, but not those very sandy environments that you typically, and I saw a good amount of, a good amount of sand. So like you just said, sand is everywhere. Um, and I will uh, highlight that recent efforts looking into the presentation of sand up enteropathy have, have highlighted the fact that, you know, Diarrhea is not often the first sign of sand. You may see horses present for poor performance or other more vague and mild signs. So I'm not trying to say that diarrhea equals sand. But if you have diarrhea and you have a horse that lives in a sandy environment with that exposure, good thing to have on the list. Um, so uh, the ultimate diagnosis for uh, for sand enteropathy is to take an, a, a cranioventral abdominal radiograph, as I'm sure we all know. But fortunately, uh, the machines in the field have gotten significantly better over time. And you know, previously, we used to think, oh, you have to go to a referral center with um, the special higher powered equipment to try to get the image. It still seems, and I've been out of the field for a while now, so those who are in the field may be able to give me more insight on this. But um, from what I've heard, worth a shot with your machine in the field. Of course, however, considering considering radiation safety, um, their ability to hold the horse and get the image and keeping everyone safe at the same time, because you do have to really crank up um, the exposure to get that image. Now, I, I start with the that point because I know we were all taught about the glove test um, and grabbing some feces, uh, per rectum, floating it in some water and evaluating the sand accumulation that way. Uh, and Unfortunately, that test is not as helpful as we all wish it could be. <laughs> so uh, if you are very suspicious of sand already, perhaps that test is helpful for helping you confirm your suspicions. But in terms of uh, being used as a screening test, um, not not exceptionally helpful. So it's something we still practice with students because it's a fun exercise. And I think that, you know, if you feel sand when you're rectaling a horse already, maybe good to show the owner that way. But um, unfortunately, I've heard uh, using the sand test equated to flipping a coin, um, depending on the <laughs> situation that the horse is in. Um, now, uh, 
So if you can have radiographs, that will, of, of course, be the, the best way to diagnose your sand. Um, as far as treatment, um, there's been the or around 2018, there were a bunch of papers out of a, a group at um, the University of Helsinki that looked into um, different treatment options. And I know that this has changed even since I've been in practice in terms of what we um, what we use. But ultimately, what, what they had found is that the com- a combination of psyllium, which is in you know sand clear, the product that we that you can give daily um, in hospital via nasogastric tube, most of us use just the big jar of psyllium that you can buy from the grocery store. Um, but a combination of that and Epsom salts, so magnesium sulfate, both at a gram per keg. So it sounds like a lot. It is a decent amount of, of solute um, resuspended. I think that paper used like 15 mils per keg, which is about you know, seven liters for a 500 K course. So the average volume that most of us would put in, but you think of in that, uh, in the face of adding all of the stuff to it, uh, maybe a little bit, um, you know, definitely you have to get a good mix going. Um, but if you treat with that combination, um, most of the horses within four days had resolved their sand impactions. And that was compared to a, a control group. So this group had a published a couple papers. The first one, they didn't have a control group and then they published this follow-up and did have one um, and was uh, significantly more successful than than no treatment. Although I will still say that just removing the horses from the sandy environment, them just standing in the hospital, not out in their pasture or wherever they go to get sand, some of them do resolve that way too, which uh, segues nicely into the point that environmental control is a huge uh, part of um, helping to prevent sand accumulation from recurring in the future and um, the treatments beyond the enteral therapies with sodium and epsom salt um, would be the same as our other diarrheal diseases so supportive care um, in terms of keeping them adequately hydrated which the enteral treatment will help to a degree although that's just um, once a day uh, typically and then anti-inflammatories um, anti-endotoxins depending on how significantly affected um, they are and then um, removing that exposure. Um, I did do a, a quick search just to make sure there was a product hadn't come out since I had finished practicing to see if anyone's already selling something that combines psyllium and Epsom salt. I didn't find anything, um, but we all know it's pretty easy to just buy the two separate containers and combine them yourself. But I uh, did, did want to check in case I might be a good thing to invest in <laughs> moving forward. One thing you and I were talking about before we actually started recording the podcast was that just because you see some sand doesn't mean that is the cause of the diarrhea. Exactly. Yes. It's a, it's a very good point to make. Um, there are a lot of horses that carry sand and never have diarrhea um, there are, and are not affected by it at all. And then there are, are, you know, of course those that carry it to enough of a degree that they have obstruction, which is of course the one far end of the spectrum. So I would say kind of like the point I brought up um, starting the sand section is that you know, keep it on your list. And I've definitely, you know, we're all influenced by those cases that's stayed with us in the hospital for a long time. So I've definitely had sand cases that I've uh, had come back to the hospital a couple of times, but you know, it's even if you do find sand exactly, as you said, does not mean it was the cause of the problem that yeah. that occurred. And I wondered if you wanted to go back and talk any more about dysbiosis. Yes, yes. Thank you. I, I would like to because that was part of the opening to my interest in the fecal microbial transplantation and trying to correct that imbalance. Um, so really, 
as uh, I even just mentioned, dysbiosis is an imbalance in the diversity of the bacteria that's typically found in the intestine. And we know that horses and all species have highly individualized balances and uh, diversity makeups in terms of what species are present within their intestine. But we certainly see certain trends in terms of which phyla are more or less represented. And uh, similarly, in disease states, which phyla are affected. So, you know, I think of um, the firmicutes are one phyla that are, are typically associated with health um, in horses um, that can get uh, can you can see derangement? So firmicutes and bacteroides are the two big that we that we think of. Um, but it, it is interesting to know that in different species, you see different. Those two um, groups are the ones that are oftentimes in um, kind of competition with each other in terms of which is the most prevalent. So even within species, you see some differences within individuals as well. Um, but all of that is to say that the normal homeostatic balance of the bacteria is really important because they produce antimicrobial products. So products that help to keep the bad bacteria at bay, if you will. Um, they compete directly for nutrients with pathogenic bacteria and they can inactivate the toxins of these other bacteria. Um, and they help to produce short chain fatty acids, which I mentioned earlier, um, are really important for nutrition of the gut, but also can inhibit the growth of pathogenic bacteria and uh, some pathobiotes. Uh, now, it's also interesting to point out that um, the microbiota can help to facilitate host barrier function as well. So through nut providing nutrients to the intestine and some other mechanisms that we're still sorting out um, help to keep the uh, intestinal barrier, so, so dividing the lumen from the bloodstream intact. Um, and that is in part through those tight junctions between the intestines, uh, but also through encouraging mucus production by the intestinal cells that create a nice little mucus layer between the intestinal epithelial cells and the luminal content. Um, and also they help to upregulate the secretion, not only of their own antimicrobial uh, peptides, but the antimicrobial peptides produced by certain cells lining the intestine and the secretion of IgA actually. So immunoglobulin A. Um, so very important to have that, that balance as a, in, in good form. Now, the things that can cause dysbiosis are manifolds. So, you know, it could be something, to, a normal physiological process like folding causes a uh, uh, change in the, uh, the balance. And while a normal physiological process, we also know it's a very big process for a mare to go through. So not trying to undersell it by calling it normal. Um, but colic, of course, um, laminitis, any significant uh, inflammatory condition, diet change, of course, which makes sense if we're feeding the bacteria differently then the different populations will reflect that. And then, of course, um, antibiotics. And so just another plug has been um, you know, throughout the industry and though and in human medicine as well as to being very careful with our antimicrobial selections and when we use them, because. Uh, interestingly, there was a study by Dr. Costa and colleagues in 2015 that uh, the microbiota changes induced by oral TMS, something a lot of us use very regularly. Um, owners and trainers may you know, decide to administer themselves, um, but they can. Uh, that, those kind of implications can last for up to 25 days. So, a lot of, yeah, it's a pretty significant um, duration of change. Um, and then, of course, you know, if we don't create changes or management doesn't help to um, encourage changes in the bacteria themselves, you know, exposure to an, an increased amount of pathogenic bacteria. So we think of you know, something like 
Clostridium difficile, Salmonella, the other Clostridial species as well, um, which can, even some of which can be found in a small percentage of healthy horses. Um, if those, those species overgrow, then we start to see that dysbiotic event as well. Uh, so if I'm trying to fit in this understanding of dysbiosis and how it's playing into the case, you know, of course, I ask questions regarding um, any existing medical conditions with medications, kind of getting back towards antibiotics, perhaps, again, our anti-inflammatories, how the feeding program may have changed, environmental exposure. So if they're you know, being turned out in a different area or exercising in a different place, do they just go to a horse show? Um, and then also, you know, recent antiparasitics even just to see, we know that those affect the parasites. Could the inflammation created by killing off the parasites also affect um, the balance of the bacteria? And, um, and to really have a better understanding of how that, if that has actually happened, does take happening, um, would take some pretty significant sequencing. And so we'd have to sequence the horse's fecal material, have an idea of what they were to start. So unfortunately, it's not something that is usually diagnosed concretely as much as presumed to potentially be pay, playing a part. Now I'm going to change tracks here a little bit because this is something I just read my first research on last year. I'm sure it's been around longer than that. But the difference between free fecal water versus diarrhea. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point, Kim. And I think we were, we were joking earlier that I, I think the first time I had uh, brought this up during residency, uh, my mentors kind of chuckled at me because they thought I was trying to um, help a patient get out of isolation before uh, maybe they, they were comfortable with it. Um, of course, the patient had tested negative for everything already. Uh, but uh, free fecal water is, uh, or also known as free fecal liquid, um, is just as the name applies, um, when excessive liquid is expelled uh, surrounding normally formed manure. So the liquid, you know, I say are surrounding, that could be both in time, so it can happen before, after, during, or even independent of the defecation process. You know, we all think of the white or paint horses that have stained hind ends or tails. Um, that's what we see with this uh, disease. It pollutes the tail and the hind legs. Um, it can cause minimally headaches for the owner who has to bathe them regularly, but also can cause skin lesions for the, the poor horses that are affected by it as well. Now, the ultimate cause is unknown, but the factors that have been associated with it through work thus far include um, dietary triggers, uh, low-grade inflammation, and social stress, um, each of which are also associated, interestingly, with the gut microbiota and dysbiosis. Now, it's interesting, however, in there have been uh, three reviews that I found uh, of the equine mi microbiome in horses with free fecal water, and they haven't... Uh, yet documented any significant change in the microbiome with uh, the type of sequencing they've used, which is our 16S RNA sequencing. I, I just bring that up because there are more, we're, there have since been more advanced uh, methods of sequencing that tell us a little bit more um, high specificity, high detail information. Um, but you know, I, 16S is still very much an, an accepted uh, method of evaluating the po bacterial populations. And based on the, those three reviews so far, um, have not seen any change in the microbiome. So I guess it seems, at least from what we know, that free fecal water is is uh, independent. Um, and thus, some of the theories as to why it's happening revert to changes in intestinal motility, um, which may involve decreased mixing uh, motility and more and stronger phasic or propulsive contractions that allow that water to um, be uh, ejected. Now, 
a group of researchers in Germany have done a lot of work on this and we're trying to rule out some of the other potential contributors to the disease. And they found that, in fact, dental disease, which, um, you know, you we do associate with abnormal fecal uh, consistency. Um, and parasite burden actually had um, no association with free fecal water either. So kind of interesting, we're ruling, ruling things out one at a time, but the things that consistently stuck around in terms of associations with free fecal water were um, horses that were in uh, a low rank on the totem pole or social hierarchy of the herd. And especially in the winter when these subordinate horses may find themselves more closely confined with other horses that could lead to anxiety. Interestingly, geldings are more affected than mares. So perhaps the mares are more dominant and thus the geldings are on the lower part of the social hierarchy. And then paint horses, interestingly, are more affected as well. The research team didn't get into more significant theories about that, but um, it's an interesting point to to consider. Generally, fortunately, free fecal water is not believed to be a cause of significant health implications. But I'll say a recent study did find that I think it was about 65% of horses with free free fecal water can have clinical signs. These can be mild signs, you know, irritation when they're passing their feces. They can be mildly bloated. Um, but they can also become colicky as well. Interestingly, in looking through when owners start to notice signs associated with free fecal water or free fecal water in general, some owners can seem to pinpoint a start to the specific event, but about half said that the horses were affected all the time, best that they could remember, and the other half seemed to remember that the horses or the horses are affected seasonally, but perhaps couldn't pinpoint exactly when it started. Um, and interestingly, some of the horses seem to be more winter affected and some spring affected as well. So clearly we're still putting together more information about this disease, but it is certainly interesting. Well, is there anything else? I mean, again, we, we all know that this, we could talk about this for days and days and there's books and papers all over the place, but is there anything else you specifically wanted to cover today, Dr. McKinney? So I feel like I wouldn't be doing um, my residency research and interests in fecal microbial plant transplantation justice if I didn't um, didn't do a little plug for it um, during during our chat today. So uh, you know, based on the two projects that we did uh, during my residency, we found uh, that the administration of fecal microbial transplantation to horses with colitis uh, allowed restoration of the, or I should say, help to facilitate restoration of the bacteria in the affected horses' intestines. And those horses began to look, at least in their bacterial balance, like the donor horse. Um, so I know there have been studies since um, that have not necessarily completely found the same findings, um, but I have, uh, I would say that that's still a treatment that's near and dear to my heart. I would say, too, that it is significantly important to uh, select your donor careful, carefully, making sure that they are free from parasites, pre- free from any infectious diseases, of course, and are fed ideally a primarily forage-based diet, uh, or you know, as much as, a, as we think most of our horses should be naturally managed. So, yeah, forage-based would be ideal. I was comparing some of the other FMT papers compared to ours, and it seems there are a range of amounts that are used, um, everything from 500 grams to we used uh, three pounds of fecal material which was a kind of an average horse pile size of manure um and soaked in water titrated to the horse's size what we thought they could um handle but typically it was six liters for an average size horse and four liters for a 
a smaller horse, but of course taken uh, further down if you're trying to transmit a miniature or a foal or something along those lines or a, an animal along those lines. Um, and then um, important that all of the papers I found so far agree in addition to ours that um, the material be kept at room temperature and um, and administered in quick succession after after creation of the of your um, slurry or poop soup as some call it. Uh, I will say too in our study so the first study um, we didn't have a control population and then the second um, enrolled control population from um, another institution um, which was helpful for us having a little more power for our results um, but did, we did not control um, PPI administration proton pump inhibitor administration and since doing more reading uh, just about the condition and recommendations that is something I would give to patients before fecal microbial transplantation ideally with enough time for the PPI to be to take effect. So if you know you're coming out in the afternoon or however you're timing your treatment, trying to get the owner give it in the morning, um, and certainly if they could be on board for um, even longer to make sure you're having having an an effect. So um, just a in addition to the protocol, but happy if anyone wants to email me questions. I get questions from time to time about protocol and how happy to share our protocol for sure. Um, and I, I will say. Um, it was uh, interesting that, you know, in learning more about free fecal water, um, even though those horses did not have changes in their microbiome, which I mentioned, um, that they were treated in one of the studies by Lawson et al. Um, they were treated with FMT and it significantly alleviated their symptom severity, which I feel if I've um, uh, had experience with clinically, anecdotally as well. So, um so that's an interesting uh, point as well to bring up. Um, so even though we don't know exactly what um, free fecal water, how that's happening, it did seem to help um, in, in some of the horses and, or, and in some of the horses in a significant way. Well, Dr. McKinney, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Disease Du Jour. We really appreciate you being here today. Thank you for having me. I had a great time chatting with you. And we appreciate our audience listening to Disease Du Jour and a special thanks to our 2022 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. We invite our listeners to go in and rate our episodes of Disease Du Jour on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K Brown, at equinenetwork.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC. 